0: Hello, you're listening to Shadow Talk. If you're a new listener, welcome. And if you're a regular, welcome back. I'm in London and joining me today, we have Jamie Collier and Adam Cook. And we're going to cover the weekly threat intelligence highlights. So
1: welcome, guys. Hello. Good afternoon.
0: Hi, Victoria. Hi. I was going to kind of just lead in with the fact that one of my weekly highlights for me is DS Pets. Has anyone else been kind of blown away by DS Pets, the channel?
2: Yeah, so this is a Slack group where we're all posting photos of our pets, and I've just not been sure how much of my own pet I can kind of post. Uh, you know, <laughs> did two in kind of two days, and kind of eased off after that.
0: No, I think it's it's. I mean, I don't have a pet, and I just love seeing everyone's pet. Features. Well,
1: neither do I need to do. I'm worried I might break the channel though if I put some photos of my mum's dog. My mum has a cockapoo, Peggy. <laughs> so I'm waiting to drop a few in there.
0: Nice. Well, while the DSPS will be dropped into the Slack channel, we can drop some highlights into the podcasts. And indeed, <laughs> we can indeed. So, um, I think the first thing we're going to lead on is developments around BlueKeep. So, yeah, Jamie, I thought I would just kind of ask you, what's the latest here?
2: Yeah. So, just for some context, uh, we've obviously talked about BlueKeep before in the podcast. It's a remote desktop protocol vulnerability uh, that affects various kind of outdated uh, Windows operating systems. Uh, and there was initially a lot of concern when it was published here back in May, uh, because the uh, it could execute remote code without any user involvement or authentication required, um, and the vulnerability it was described as wormable. Uh, what that means in English is that the uh, or malware exploiting this vulnerability could easily spread from one vulnerable system to another. Uh, so then you could see these kind of rapid spreads of the, of the malware. Um, we've seen this kind of way back in the day with the My Doom and I Love You worms uh, for. People that aren't InfoSec veterans, uh, WannaCry or NotPetya might be more familiar. Um, but as I said, since we first heard about this in May, there's been a steady increase in kind of doomongering about uh, BlueKeep. Um, in addition to the vulnerability being published in May, there were proof of concepts being uh, published. Then in June, uh, a private Metasploit uh, module was uh, developed, uh, wasn't put on the actual platform, but uh, was used by other people um then we saw a chinese language exploit guide being published in july now finally we're actually seeing it being exploited um but as is typical with BlueKeep, it's failed to keep up with its own hype mm. um so while there was all this concern that it could be this wormable malware that could affect you know huge number of systems um this is this wasn't actually a worm that jumps from one computer to another the actor behind the campaign appeared to first conduct a scan and then only target vulnerable uh, systems um And then the other thing is it just installs a cryptocurrency miner. So while in the past we've seen ransomware or something that actually has a bit more of an impact, uh, we wouldn't typically get too worried about cryptocurrency uh, miners.
0: So I guess um, we kind of have to consider there's two things here. So the attacker has exploited or used or exploited the vulnerability, but in a different way to how it was thought it could exploit. Is that correct or?
2: Yeah, sort of. So I, I think the initial concern was that you would infect one computer and then th- that kind of infection would spread to other, um, yeah. other vulnerable systems. That would be if it was a kind of a worm. Uh, and that allows for that really rapid spread, of, you know, across the world, uh, as we saw with WannaCry, you know, affected the NHS, um, but then also affected a number of other systems uh, in different geographies, different sectors. Um, what we're talking about here is a Fed actor actually having to find out which Systems are vulnerable and then effectively targeting them individually. Mm-hmm. So, what you don't get there is the same level of scale.
0: Yeah, because I'm just thinking more broadly, sorry, I'm just going a bit more detail about the fact that it was tested in environments by security researchers as, and was deemed dangerous. But, it, yeah.
2: Yeah, so we've seen it before. There's been proof of concept attacks. Uh, we've seen modules uh, added to Metasploit, as I said, that are capable of uh, exploiting uh, Bluekeep. But um, I think, as you mentioned, we've not quite seen it uh, kind of uh, explode in the way we thought. Um, And I think there's kind of a few reasons for this. Um, I think one is that it does only work against these quite dated operating systems now. Um, So not many people are using XP, Windows 7, uh, Windows Server 2008, etc. And I think a lot of threat actors now are quite interested in where the majority of users are uh, and, you know, targeting them. So that would be kind of one reason. Um, there has also been reporting around previous exploits that they've encountered stability issues. Uh, so that could potentially be a factor. I think another thing to consider here is there are a lot of exploit opportunities to explore. You know, every week we see new vulnerabilities reported. Um, so you know, there's, it's not like this is the only one. But I think uh, hopefully this is also uh, a cause for optimism because it could be a sign that the cybersecurity industry is maturing. Um, a lot of news about this got out really quickly, um, and it could hopefully be a sign that organisations are taking patching seriously. Uh, they've learned the lessons from incidents like WannaCry, NotPetya, etc., um, and really seeking to mitigate these out the blocks.
0: Yeah, so the hype, I guess, in in some ways did some good.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it's still certainly something to take seriously. Um, it could still have you know quite a spread, but I think the good news is every week that it's not. Uh, more awareness is being raised about this, uh, more people are going to be patching, uh, hopefully the overall impact of any kind of ne- negative incident would uh, be lower.
0: So kind of in regards to this development, what um, could we be doing to kind of prevent, you know, bluekeeper installing a cryptocurrency miner? Is there anything around that?
2: or so it's really simple. Just if you've got one of these uh, affected systems, uh, just patch patch your systems. Um, that's what we said on back in May. Yeah. Um, and you know, as much as cybersecurity can be seen as this very complex, uh, intangible problem, uh, sometimes it is very simple.
0: Great. Well, moving on, we then have um, a new ransomware or a new version of a r- ransomware called Mega Cortex. So, um, Jamie, I thought maybe we could just discuss that. What is it, and kind of what does it do?
2: Yeah, so Mega Cortex is you know, pretty standard ransomware, but there have been these three changes in this latest variant. Uh, the first is that it uses a new ex- extension, and the ransom message uh, appears uh, in the login prompt. So the user doesn't even need to log in before they see uh, the ransom uh, note. Now, that's important for the second change, which is that the ransomware now changes a user's or a victim's Windows password. So that actually prevents them from logging in at all. Um, and the third change now is that the ransom note is threatening to publish uh, a victim's files if they don't pay up.
0: And so I guess, yeah, it's worth kind of talking about the ransomware threat here. So um, in this case, as you said, it kind of threatens to publish the victim's files um, if they don't pay up. So what is the purpose of, yeah, what's the purpose of that? Because the attacker clear, clearly wants to kind of scaremonger or do something there that, for, for the victim.
2: Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say here is that we don't actually know that the files will be published. All we've seen is a threat to do so. Um, ransom campaigns are known to contain empty threats, and actually, the procedures for publishing files is quite different from uh, encrypting them. We need a actor to kind of potentially copy the files and be able to exfiltrate them uh, in a way that they wouldn't necessarily have to with a ransomware campaign uh, that's just seeking to encrypt files.
0: Last week, we actually. Um we discussed the fact that a ransomware note had been published on the website for the city of johannesburg which also links into you know that is also a threat that was posted so um yeah if you think more broadly this is what actors are doing
2: yeah so it's it's still early days but it's going to be really interesting to watch if there is this kind of natural evolution in ransom campaigns um where there is more or where there's more threat now about uh files being published This could be for a few reasons. I think one thing could just be that natural evolution. So a few years ago, we saw a lot of the larger organizations being targeted by ransomware. Um, As they've started to shore up their defenses, there's been much more targeting of smaller organizations, a lot of local government uh, entities, for example. Now, if those smaller organizations are now getting their acting gear, and they're starting to mitigate ransomware, they're keeping backups uh, able to restore quickly. One way that Uh, threat actors and cyber criminals could potentially adapt to that is by instead threatening to publish uh, files online.
1: Nice. So, yeah, interesting one to watch.
0: Great. Well, in other news, uh, a Japanese media company, Nikkei, announced it was the victim of a business email compromise scan. Scam. So Adam, yeah, what kind of happened here?
1: Indeed. Yeah. So we heard in the news this week that the American branch of Japan's largest financial media organization, Nikkei Incorporated, who own large publications such as the Financial Times and the Nikkei Asian Review, we heard that one employee of the US subsidiary transferred twenty nine million dollars to a fraudulent bank account under instruction from a business email compromise scammer, which was claiming to be a Nikkei financial financial management executive
0: Mm. i think the it's kind of interesting the way that the attacker dressed up as a nikai um management executive so that in that case what we can see here is account takeover so the victim would have been yeah frauded in that case
1: absolutely yeah so reporting suggested that this was a form of business email compromise that people are calling vendor email compromise where a third party is compromised and their account is then used for the attack. So some might initially hear of this story and think that alarm bells should be ringing when a third party is asking you to transfer such a large sum. But this form of compromise is very difficult to detect as it's likely that the threat actors who were doing this compromised the email account of the vendor, making any you know seemingly fraudulent emails seem 100% legitimate. There was kind of two... Two aspects to this, I guess that the threat actors, after compromising the vendor's email account, had a couple of options. One was either to set up an email forwarding rule so that communications could be monitored and then an opportunity to send through a fraudulent invoice or transaction request could then be capitalised on. Or, and this is the more likely case for the Nikkei instance, is that the attackers send an edited invoice from the compromised account, therefore making it seem, you know, or appear Completely legitimate. So it's interesting, it's possible that the attackers used a combination of both, maybe tracing lines of communication and exchanges of information throughout uh, you know, exchanges between the two, and then used those in the fraudulent email sent from the legitimate account, helping them to literally raise no suspicions on the user's end. So it makes you know that type of scam very difficult to detect as it goes beyond the traditional security training that most employees get nowadays who are often told to look out for emails from untrusted sources or you know indeed unknown sources but it's hard to place all the blame on the employee in this instance if they believe that they are corresponding with a legitimate of course yeah
0: yeah as you kind of Um, touched on the fact that traditional mitigation would be you know when you're an employee look out for an email that seems a bit rushed that there's spot you know poor spelling typos those are common things that we should be looking at you you're never really taught um, or you don't really look out for people to who are trusted people are trusted parties so there's another thing to consider here when you're speaking with you know partners clients your own um colleagues Mm -hmm. um so it adds kind of another um element to this
1: yeah absolutely and it's you know it's evidence that these kind of scams are you know becoming not only more common but more sophisticated i think i read that there was reporting from the fbi's like in like annual report or something suggesting that losses from such attacks are increasing year on year Likely because groups that specialised in these kind of scams, you know, are strengthening their TTPs and their tactics. Yeah.
0: Well, in fact, actually, in 2018, we published a report called um, Cybercriminals on the Outlook for your emails. So this was a report tar- uh, based on business email compromise. This was back in 2018. So obviously it's ongoing. And what we highlighted was that um, uh, these scams, you know, are targeting businesses and, and in, in And individuals, obviously, um, and that corporate email accounts can be compromised for as little as one hundred and fifty dollars, which then leads to obviously this compromise. So, um, yeah, just in general, this is obviously a, a big area of concern for businesses who are going to be targeted in this way.
1: Absolutely. And there's there's some kind of case specific triage or security pointers around this in terms of email forwarding rules and, you know, potentially on a more technical side trying to match ip addresses used in email headers with ones that are uh, associated with the known accounts that you're corresponding with but as we just touched on like that goes beyond the average employee's mm. security training or job spec for the most part but more more widely it's important to understand or underline procedures such as two factor authentication you know uh, all the kind of by the by stuff helps to protect accounts whose password might be leaked in large data breaches, Of course.
0: I think another thing um, to kind of focus on is the the attackers obviously identified all these different steps when they were doing this account takeover. First, they had to identify the fact that they needed to find a compromised account. Um, Then they needed to find the individual who they were going to target. Then they would have to consider the fact that they would need to funnel the money through the bank so that's another element within their campaign and I think that point the last point just mentioned on about you know the actual bank transfer is also something that needs to be scrutinized when you're going through this process within the business you know if if that person is in charge of transferring money should there be uh, stronger protocols or uh, more yeah solid protocols in place to prevent that amount being transferred but when I say this of course you know it really comes down to the business so for example um 29 million being transferred from a small cafe would obviously not make sense but sure. if you're dealing as you as we kind of touched on the fact that Nikkei is a global corporation it mm. will be dealing with these kinds of maps constantly day to day and so I guess you know you've got to think about the employees who are transferring it so you've got to have protocols there but also you know the bank um needs to be thinking about protocols that could prevent this as well. So there are so many different steps when you're um, approaching this. Definitely. Um, I guess one thing to kind of go back to is the fact that the account, um, the victim, so the third party's victim account, that was compromised um, via account takeover. Um, I guess to kind of touch on the fact that if you're looking to kind of prevent this, one way would be to kind of monitor for uh, credential exposure and... There are many platforms in place, including Digital Shadows, Searchlight, Absolutely. which can um, monitor for these um, account comp- compromises. So, um, yeah, that, that's just there are a lot of ways that you can approach this to kind of prevent that moving forward, I guess. Hundred percent. I
2: think the other thing is if you're worried about the vendor compromise uh, and you're kind of a bit of a MITRE attack nerd, then um, the tactic is referred to as trusted relationship. Uh, so there's a lot of content on the MITRE website about uh Fed actors that do this, how they do it, et
0: cetera. Nice. Yeah, I like that. Great. And yeah, while we're on the subject of um, a credential exposure or breaches, there is um, news that web.com experienced a data breach. So I guess, um, yeah, what exactly was compromised here?
1: Yeah. So again, in the news this week, we heard that web.com had suffered a breach, which exposed user account information such things as names, addresses, phone numbers, etc. No payment information reportedly, but subsidiaries of Web.com, including Network Solutions and Registrar.com, were were breached as well. Uh, Network Solutions is the fifth largest registrar in the world, so it's likely there was a significant amount of user information exposed in this case. And again, researchers state that this should be a wake up call for organizations to improve their approach to security. But the reality is with, you know, much of the reporting on large data breaches, it's often the case that big organizations tend to wait until they are compromise before they make a move towards these improvements.
0: Yeah. And I guess it's just a bit frustrating because obviously we see breaches, you know, day to day, week by week, like, you know, this breach that has just occurred shouldn't be another wake-up call like surely we're all we should all be awake by now yeah
1: i mean you'd like to think so wouldn't you but you just said it there we see them every week so it's it's actually something that the the digital shadows intelligence team is looking at analyzing in this week's intelligence summary Which, as our listeners should know, is available on the Digital Shadows website. All weekly intelligence summaries are. Yeah, so Uh, that's
0: resources.digitalshadows.com.
1: That's the one. You can also subscribe to that for those weekly intelligence updates. Um, so yeah, as I said, this week uh, we kind of hooked that, uh, or that analysis on the reporting that 21 million login credentials and accounts are being sold on dark web marketplaces associated with some of the fortune 500 companies while these reports and you know those similar like it like the ones like web.com often grab the headlines digital shadows has actually observed a significant number of breaches affecting smaller and mid-sized organizations within the same reporting period so within the last week or so it's nothing new that data breaches affect organizations of all sizes but some of the analysis that the team is looking to provide this week acknowledges that the dark web is a trove of forums and marketplaces that sell and distribute this data but there's also open source platforms you know that can often be overlooked as a facilitator of breach data distribution as well
0: and i think that's a nice point you know there is always this if we go back on the word hype you know hype around the dark web and it's very common that your data is equally available on the open and the deep web. So um, all these angles you've got. to. um,
2: I think it's also something that the threat intelligence industry could be a lot better at. Um, And the cybersecurity teams as well. I think we often get quite defeatist when there has been a data breach. We think that's the attack done where the victim, um, you know, how do we prevent this in the future? But actually, as Adam said, there's a lot of different places this data can go. And all of those kind of different sources have different implications uh, for a potential victim uh you know they can need to kind of think about where it's going to go how they can potentially put some mitigation or containment steps in uh likewise i think for the threat intelligence industry we talk a lot about the kill chain as an attack is going on but there's this kind of post-attack kill chain that we're almost seeing where data can go to different places it can be used in different ways um, and i think we need to get better at uh, developing the kind of or using the concepts that we've already got in place uh, and applying them to that
0: kind of problem yeah to the cleanup Mm -hmm. well great So I think that's everything for this week. Of course, um, Adam has touched on the fact that you can visit resources.digitalshadows.com to find out more information around uh, the weekly highlights. But yes, once again, thank you all for listening and we really hope you enjoyed today's
1: podcast. Thank you.